Hello, my name is Abby Rasmussen, and I've been going to Lighthouse Church, and I'm going to be reading Galatians 6, 6 through 10. Let the one who is taught the word share all good things with the one who teaches. Do not be deceived. God is not to be mocked. For whoever, for whatever one sows, that will he also reap. For the one who sows to his own flesh will from the flesh reap corruption. But the one who sows to the spirit will from the spirit reap eternal life. And let us not grow weary of doing good, for in due season we will reap. If we do not give up, so then, as we have opportunity, let us do good to everyone, and especially to those who are the household of faith. Thank you, Abby. Uh, welcome, everyone. Um, Greg is still in Georgia, so your prayers for him are much appreciated. We're going to uh, work over the next couple of weeks here to finish out uh, Paul's letter to the Galatians. So for today, let's, let's go ahead and pray. Father God, we thank you for your word and, and the instruction that it gives us and the encouragement and when needed, Lord, uh, the correction. And so we, we seek that today, Lord, as we, as we dig in uh, to the last part of Galatians here over the next couple of weeks, Lord, just uh, help us to see what you have for us. In Jesus' name, amen. And so um, we know as a congregation, we're, we're, we're a Bible church, right? We know that, you know, as, as Paul wrote to Timothy in his second letter, that all Scripture is breathed out by God and is profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. And so not only in this passage do we see that we're equipped for good work, but we see that we're to be trained in righteousness through the Word. And so that's primarily what we'll see today in today's scriptures. The big idea in, in today's scriptures is, is that we should do good. I grew up with a, with a stepdad who was kind of against the church, uh, against any kind of religion, and he would call religious people do-gooders. And it was, and it was kind of a, a tinge to his voice. It wasn't a good thing, right? Those do-gooders and Bible thumpers. So uh, that's how I grew up. But then, uh, and then the Lord worked in... in uh, in my heart and eventually in, in his. But uh, so that's, um, that's who we should be known as, though, but not in, the, not in a negative way, but we are to do good. Um, the first thing we see here, verse 6, let the one who is taught the word share all good things with the one who teaches. And so, so we should honor um, our teachers, or uh, he's, Paul's calling the church here to honor your teachers. And we should share all good things with our teachers. Now, before you think this is some kind of a self-promoting you know, promoting thing that I'm trying to get something out of you, um, <laughs> this is a scripture that struck me um, after I already felt the call. James 3.1 says, not many of you should become teachers, my brothers, for you know that we who teach will be judged with a greater strictness. And so that verse you know, caused me to take a, take a step back. And man, I'm Phil calling to, to be a teacher, and there's a great responsibility with that. And there's also this great accountability from the Lord too. So, so I love that. He holds me accountable to, to preach the word. And so as much as, as this verse here, let the one who has taught the word share all good things, as much as that does mean to share financially, it also means to share, what does it say here? In all good things. And so, so good, what is, what is the greatest 
good, right? It's to love God and to love people. We know that. When we have a, a pallet wood sign that's above our welcome table out here that, that has that on there, you know, loving God, loving people, and, and reaching the world. And, you know, that, that wasn't something clever that we came up with, right? Um, you know, we, we were on a pastor's prayer getaway many, many years ago, and we were kind of brainstorming a vision statement, how to, you know, something that would sum up Lighthouse and what our, what our heart is. And, and someone, you know, said, well, there was this guy who said something about something that was kind of neat. Okay, not really. He did say, though, but he was talking about Jesus. And he said, um, how about when Jesus said to love God and to love people? And we're like, man, duh, right? We're all trying to come up with these clever things from ourselves and how we could phrase what Lighthouse is all about, but it's Jesus, right? And so it was, it was a reminder for us that we shouldn't get too far from our calling, right? We're, we're a, a Jesus church, right? We, we celebrate and love and worship Jesus here. And so to get too far away from that, that was a good moment to remind us of that, that we should just stick to Scripture and what it says about who we are. And so Scripture says to share all good things, and we should take that seriously. We should look to see what that means. And so as I alluded to earlier, there are those who would take this verse and others and make it about, you know, maybe the offering or maybe a new jet for themselves or a, a watch from the congregation, right? And so, uh, but that's not, that's not the correct reading. Um, we see here, we just should read that as plainly as it's written, all good things. And we know what good things are, right? You know, in, in all good things, you know, so some examples. I've been very blessed here in my short time as one of your pastors to be to be blessed in these good things. You know, I've been, I've been given gift cards to local restaurants, and, and, and I'm not fishing for anything more, right? Just, I'm just saying, right? right? So, but I've been blessed, right, you know, to, to be asked to officiate weddings or, or funerals. And, and I've been, you know, given handwritten notes, both good and bad. Um, and, um, you know, my first year on staff here, the elementary students gave us a nice framed, you know, thank you, you know, welcome, uh, thank you, pastor's appreciation note, and it was so cute, and it's still in my office, um, you know, and so I get to hear about your struggles and your surgeries and your new, newborn babies or your newborn grandbabies, and, you know, um, I get to hear about your, your job changes and your job losses, you know, I get to celebrate, you know, your spiritual growth, you know, those times when you have a victory here and there, and, and I get to encourage you when, when you have a setback, and so you, you might be out there saying, wait a minute. Some of those things, like, those aren't good things, aren't they? Right? Let's be reminded of what Romans 8, 28 says, that all things work together for the good, right, for those who are called according to His purpose. And so those are good things because they do work in us the things that God wants us to. And so those are good things. And so the point is we, we exist in relationship to each other. And so there's, there's a saying that I don't, hear, well, I don't hear it so much anymore, but I used to hear it, um, something along the lines of, you can have a personal relationship with Jesus. And, and while, while that's true, um, this, this kind of came in around the same time in culture that you would hear people, um, they would talk about Jesus that, that didn't resemble the Jesus that I knew, right? So this was about the same time people would say, well, I got my truth and you have your truth. And just so long as you're speaking your truth, 
then that's cool, right? But, but the connotation there is that, you know, if you're speaking your truth and I'm speaking my truth, then, then we're kind of unassailable from something resembling ultimate truth, right? And so if I can claim something that's truth that's different than your truth, it's okay because that's, it's truth. So that kind of crept into the church a little bit, the big C church, that, that when I would hear people talking about a Jesus that didn't resemble the Jesus that I knew, the Jesus from Scripture, you know, this is mostly in the progressive Christian movement or from people who don't really know Jesus a lot yet. They may come into to the family with, with some crazy ideas from something they might have heard. But, you know, this Jesus has been reduced to someone who's only love and acceptance and someone who would never judge or place any requirements on anyone. And so for them, this was their personal relationship with Jesus as it only pertained to them. So, so let me be clear about you do have a personal relationship with Jesus, but it's He personally called you, He created you, and He provided for your salvation. And so He knows you intimately. That's the personal side of that. And He, he calls you into community, in this community of believers that dates all the way back to the first century, right? The, the very first uh, believers of Christ. But then he's also calling you into, into this history that, that dates all the way back to creation. That, you know, and it's what's so cool is that one day you'll be face to face in eternity with everyone who ever put their trust in Jesus as Lord and Savior. And so I find that that's so cool that that's what we're called into when we're called into a relationship with Jesus. So knowing that he calls us, he calls you into a local community of believers, like in the here and now, right? So he's connecting us to eternity past and, and to the first church, but, but he's also calling you to the here and now. And, you know, Jesus knows that that can be a little difficult sometimes, but it also can bring great, great joy. And so, you know, because you think of all the different personalities and attitudes, upbringings, you know, how you were parented or how you parent and, you know, whatever religious experience you might have come into the church with, you know, so there's all these differences that, that come in here. And so how are we to manage these differences then, right? How, how are we to come together into a community and into a family with the Word of God, right? The, the Word of God is essential to and informs us on a number of things. It, uh, the first being love, and then our unity, and how to reconcile um, our generosity, um, honoring others as greater than ourselves, or serving, and on and on and on. We look to the we look to the Bible to see what Christ's heart is for us, and so the Word of God is central to following Jesus. And so the the third thing that we see is is in this doing good, verses seven and eight, that we should honor God. So it says, do not be deceived. God is not mocked. For whatever one sows, that will he also reap. For he who sows to his flesh will reap of the flesh corruption, but he who sows to the Spirit will of the Spirit reap everlasting life. And so this, this section, section is interesting because it starts out with, do not be deceived. It was Abraham Lincoln who's given credit for and Anytime you find some of these quotes, there's articles that say he didn't say it, he did say it, but, but the point is whether or not he said it or not, it has been said that you can fool some of the people all of the time and all of the people some of the time, 
but you cannot fool all of the people all of the time. And so for us, we know that we have an enemy who is coming against us, as, as Steve said. He's, we have an enemy who wants to, to rob, steal, and kill, and he also wants to deceive us. He wants to present us with a counterfeit Jesus or with a counterfeit righteousness or a counterfeit gospel. But just as dangerous as our enemy is in trying to present us these counterfeits, perhaps more insidious is the deception that we perpetrate upon ourselves. And so, you know, wrapping ourselves in some kind of a veneer of religion or, you know, kind of proposing or pretending, but God knows, right? And God can see right through that. And it's this kind of deception that mocks God. And so the word mock here, it's been translated different places in the Bible to scorn or to deride. You know, it means a lack of respect or reverence, right, for something, and in this case, God. And so this, this is a stern warning about this type of deception, and it displays this disrespect for God. And so for me, as I'm thinking about this, there's like immediately two scriptural examples that, that come to mind. The first is, is this couple that we find in Acts by the name of Ananias and Sapphira. So they're the first one that kind of immediately came to my mind. And in, the, in chapter 5 of the book of Acts, we see their story. And Ananias had sold a piece of property. And in, in this chapter 5 and 4, we see the, the, the context and what's going on in the church. So the, the early church was growing, and their, their unity and their generosity was like off the charts. They, they were really fired up. And we see this in Acts 4.34. The, the result of that, it says, nor was there anyone among them who lacked, for all who were possessors of lands or houses sold them and brought the proceeds of the things that were sold. And it goes on to say that they brought them to the church so that they could, that, that money could be distributed among the, the church and meet the church's needs of the, the people. In, they were undergoing great persecution and they'd been driven from their livelihoods and you know, suffered loss of land. And so this was a great benefit to the early church with those with, with excess, you know, because these were most likely excess houses or excess land. Um, there's not really a recording of anyone who you know, would make themselves completely homeless or dependent on the church by selling everything that they had. But we do see the kingdom mind in these people. And it's also not to say that people didn't give everything, right? We, we remember the widow and her two mites. That was all she had. And, and we know that the regard of the Lord that he had for her. And so the other thing is, it's not saying that we give out of our excess. This was the, this was the beginning of the church, right? So, so for us, we don't give out of our excess. We, we, quite the opposite, we give of first fruits, right? As we're told in Scripture. And so we don't give what's left over. We give what's, what's first. But for this beginning of the church... This was, the, this was the heart of the church for, for each other, to do good to each other. There was, there was need in the church. There was lack in the church. And, and so these people with extra sold it to bring the money in to help their brothers and sisters in the Lord. And so we pick this point up here that they're, about their motivation, right? They, they were no longer concerned about gathering riches to themselves. They saw the need. They, they knew they needed to do good, and, and they did so. And so, so the question, like, you know, are you heaping up 
for yourself or is your heart for the kingdom? And in, in Acts, they, they answered the question, we're for the kingdom. And so, you know, um, we know that Jesus told us, told them that earthly treasures would what? They would grow wings and fly away. They would rust and moths would come in and eat them. You know, so the earthly treasures are, are not eternal. And so, so back to the book of Acts. There was a, a mix of Jewish and, and Gentile believers. And, you know, the, the Jewish believers had this history of giving to the temple. So it wasn't necessarily out of order for them to give, but it was just now their direct their giving was redirected. And then there were also Gentile believers who came in with whatever kind of background they had about gathering up things for themselves and, and, and whatever kind of sacrifice they needed to give. So it was certainly a new thing for everyone involved to give to, give to the church and to, and to do good to their fellow brother and sister in the Lord. So Everyone in the church was witnessing this going on. They were seeing people sell lands and houses and bring it into the church. And so they no doubt were rejoicing and even celebrating those who gave, right? I mean, you can imagine someone walking in and, and saying, hey, I just sold my house and here's, you know, here's the money. So it would be a big deal, right? We would go, wow, check out that person. And so, so presumably in the midst of this, Ananias thinks, well, somehow he can pull a fast one, get some attention for himself maybe, but the only person that he deceives is himself. And so th think about the message here that, that he and his wife, their actions, what that communicated, right? So, so they knew that, that God's generosity blesses us with material things, and we know that God loves a cheerful giver. So far, so good, right? But, but then comes the corruption, right? They begin to think, well, the church, the people in the church, they love and they celebrate a giver. So, so we'll appear to be generous givers by claiming to give the entire proceeds of the land sale to the church, all the while keeping back some, right? So I don't know why they kept some back. You know, maybe they wanted to renovate the garage or something. Who knows, right? Um, but Paul clearly tells them that it isn't the issue that they felt like they had to keep some back. It was their money after all. But the mockery of God was claiming to give it all to appear more generous, right? So the implication is they're going to receive this adoration and praise from the local congregation for their supposed generosity. And so they, and so they lied. They lied to God. And so we see from that story that they, they pay a high price for sowing to the flesh. And I'll read that here in, in Acts 5, 1 through 5, for those who aren't familiar or maybe need a refresher. But a man named Ananias and his wife Sephora sold a piece of property, and with his wife's knowledge, he kept back for himself some of the proceeds and brought only a part of it and laid it at the apostles' feet. But Peter said, Ananias, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit and to keep back for yourself part of the proceeds of the land? While it remained unsold, did it not remain your own? And after it was sold, was it not at your disposal? Why is it that you have contrived this deed in your heart? You have not lied to man, but to God. When Ananias heard these words, he fell down and breathed his last. That's, that's heavy, right? I mean, talk about sowing to the flesh and reaping corruption, right? So, 
The second example from Scripture that comes to mind is, is Samson. And we, and we don't have time for the, for the whole story, but you can see this whole sordid story in Judges 16. And from that story, we see that Samson was anointed by God to judge Israel. And he was to act as its protector and, and, and to direct them. But Samson was, Samson was a sexually lustful man. And he disregarded and disrespected God in this way, particularly, like I said, in his sexual ethics and morality. And we see throughout the story that there came a point in, in this mockery of God that Samson was going to get what Samson was wanted. He wanted what he wanted, and he was going to go get it, regardless of, of what God had told him about it right through, through the Scripture. We knew through the Scripture um, even what was available to Samson, God's heart uh, for, our, for our relationships. So Samson disrespected, disregarded, he mocked God. And so there comes a point in this when, when the Holy Spirit leaves Samson, and he doesn't even know it, right? He doesn't even know it till later. So it's this self-deception, right, that reaps corruption, right? And so we see Samson, you know, he ends up being physically enslaved, and he's got his eyes gouged out, and he's just in a worse state than, than ever. But it would, comes from this this idea he was sowing to the flesh, and he reaped corruption. And so for us, you know, that's, that's a heavy, heavy caution to make sure that our motives are, are focused on honoring God. And we do that by being honest um, in our doing good. So the next thing we come to in this, in, in verse 10, is... We'll skip down to verse 10, and it says, So then, as we have the opportunity, let us do good to everyone, and especially to those who are the household of faith. So we're to honor all, especially believers. Our feather, our feather, <laughs> our fellow <laughs> brothers and sisters in Christ, right? Not our feathers, our fellow brothers and sisters in Christ. We're to honor those, especially um, in doing good. And so really what Paul's talking about here is, is the significance of the community that you've been called to in Christ Jesus, right? Doing good to all, especially those to the household of faith. That's, that's us here, right? It, it is the big C church, absolutely. There's no, no question about that, right? And, and I think in this, in this passage of Scripture, you know, we get um, do good to everyone, right? We get it, right? We, we should be nice to those driving down blue lakes and we should be nice to the waitress and to the mailman, right? Right? We should be nice to the checkout person at the grocery store, even though increasingly that's us, right? I mean, so be nice to yourself, right? So we, uh, we get it, right? So we should be nice to other people. And, and then we should show Christ's love to everyone that we have the opportunity and we should do good to them, right? And so... The, the key here in this verse is, is especially to those who are of the household of faith. It's about this community that we're called to. So you're, you're not an island unto yourself, um, especially in the church. You, you exist in relationship to others. And you've heard me say, well, and maybe not, but um, I have said it, and this might be your first time, that, that you don't go to church, you are the church. And this is what Paul's getting to here. 
right? So, so not individually, you're not individually the church, but collectively you are the church. And so we see that when the church was, um, the idea for the church, when Jesus was quizzing Peter and the guys about who he was. So in Matthew 16, 18, Peter has told Jesus that, that he recognizes him as the Son of God. And on this truth, Jesus says in Matthew 16, 18, and I tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. And then the next verse says, Peter, you and John, go get some cinder blocks, and James, go get a building permit, and we're going to build a church right here, right? No, it doesn't say that at all, right? Because Jesus was building his church with the souls of people gathered through the truth of the gospel, right? You, we can go, when we go to Israel, you can go to the spot where this happened, and it's still just a cave and a grotto, and, and there's, there's a building there, but it's a gift shop, so... Um, Jesus didn't build his church there, right? So he's, he's not talking about a physical building. He's talking about the souls gathered through the gospel. And so we see this in Romans 12, 4 through 5, right? For as in one body we have many members, and the members do not all have the same function. So we, though many, are one body in Christ and individually members of one another. And then the, the same thought in, in 1 Peter 2, 4 and 5. For as in one body we have many members, and the members do not all have the same function, so we, though many, are one body in Christ and individually members of one another. So you're members of, of one another when, you're, when you come to Jesus. When you put your faith in Jesus, you become part of a community. And so the point being is the church is a big deal. It's a big deal to God. Jesus instituted it for the purpose of winning souls, right, of plundering hell. And so this and other passages reveal the church is more than just, it's, we're not a club, right? Um, we don't just like the same thing. Um, clubs are fine, but um, as a body of believers, we're brought into a covenant relationship with Jesus. And so Jesus envisioned and began a church that, that was based on those called to it, being bound together in a covenant relationship based on his life, death, resurrection, and, and future plan for the church, right? So we're then inserted into this local body of believers, right? Lighthouse Church. You've been inserted here by the calling of God with the implication that you're now in a committed relationship, right? The, within the local representation of, of the body of believers, right? There's mutual responsibility. There's mutual accountability. That's the idea, right? The purpose of this relationship is to help aid in the completion of your spiritual growth and to help others in theirs, quite frankly. And it's to love and encourage others in their spiritual walk as you're encouraged in your spiritual walk. You know, it's the church where you're equipped for ministry. It's where you're held accountable and where you hold others accountable. And it's where you count on others as they count on you. And so consider... Paul's plea to the church at Philippi. There, there, was, there was two women, bear with me with the names, Euodia and Syntyche. And 
they had some sort of disagreement. The Scripture doesn't really say what it is, but, but they had some sort of disagreement, and they were, they were divided. And, and so Paul said, yeah, why don't just one of you guys go to another church down the road? No, he didn't say that at all, right? In Philippians, right? right you guys are with me. I love it. This is good, right? Amen. So in Philippians 4, 2, and 3, we pick up this story. He's talking to this Philippians church, and he's encouraging them, and then he just has these few lines here. He's talking to the whole church, and he says, I entreat Yodia and I entreat Syntyche to agree in the Lord. Yes, I ask you, true companion, help these women who have labored side by side with me in the gospel together with Clement and the rest of my fellow workers whose names are in the book of life. So this word entreat, beg, Paul is begging these women to reconcile themselves and then he's calling on the church to help out, like, like intervene, help these, help these two to come together and agree in the Lord. And I love this phrase, agree in the Lord. Like how many times in a disagreement do we try to get people to agree with us? Right? I'm just saying. Right? So, listen, disagreements are tough, right? Um, not many of us like confrontation and and, and the stir that, that that creates. But if we're going to live up to the model that, of the church that Jesus began, if we're going to, if we're going to be known as, as those who follow Christ, we need to agree in the Lord, right? That, that the group of people that we're surrounded with are here because the Lord brought them here. And we should likewise strive for unity and, and honor Him in doing good to one another. Right? And so it means not bailing when, when things get tough or a better offer comes along. So, so think of this committed relationship much like a marriage, right? The, the church in Scripture is pictured as the bride of Christ, and Jesus is the bridegroom. So that's no, no coincidence, right, that we have this visual. And so it's sad but true that many marriages do fail at the first sign of, of disagreement and and all too often, one spouse is traded in uh, when another better offer comes along, right? That's, I hope that's as uncomfortable for you to hear as it is for me to say. That shouldn't be. So the point is, is that our relationship with one another in the church, it's not transactional. We, you know, we, don't, we don't get to pick and choose in that way, right? So our particular church, having said all of that, right, our particular church is, is not large enough. It it's, is large enough, sorry, it is large enough, um, that it makes it hard to be intimately aware with 500 people, right, to know their spiritual journey and, and the things they struggle with and how they're doing on their walk, which is why we went to one service this past April, and you know, we wanted to bring everyone together and, and get more connected and provide for more fellowship. And you know, the one thing that we used to say, and it is still true, that the, the bigger we get as a church, the smaller we need to be. And meaning it's, um, again, back to this idea of we, I cannot intimately know each of your situations, right? I, when I hear that, you know, I, I hear uh, occasionally, oh, yeah, I just, I'm feeling a lot better, just got over a cold. I'm like, well, I didn't even know you're sick. Or, you know, hey, I had the surgery, and I'm recovering from the surgery. I didn't even know you had the surgery. And so sometimes I feel bad about that, but then I look out here and I go, okay, how much time would it take me to intimately connect with each one of you, right? So that's not reasonable. So, so the point is here, this is the pitch coming for small groups, right? 
But that's the church, right? We should be in these intimate relationships where we can know what's going on with, with people's lives, right? So it's no wonder that Jesus had 12 disciples, right? And within that group, he had a couple of really close disciples with some that he took up to the mountain with him, others he asked to pray with him. Like that's a pattern that we should really, really honor in our, in our lives, right? So yes, there was the multitudes that Jesus preached to and fed, but, but when he retreated to a place where he needed to, to recharge and refresh, it was to that group of disciples that he had. He met with them in the upper room prior to Passover, right? That was no accident, and it was a pattern. So it's this type of intimate accountability and care and encouragement that happens in, in these small groups, you know, and supported by, you know, and directed by the local church. And so, so the idea here is we should do good to everyone, but especially to the household of faith, right? especially to the brothers and sisters next to you. And, and the fifth thing that we see here, um, potentially the last, um, is, is you need to honor your calling in verse 9. And let us not grow weary while doing good, for in due season we shall reap if we do not lose heart. Oh, growing weary and losing heart, that's... That's a danger in, in, in the church, and it's a danger in ministry. And I say that you've all been called to ministry because you have. Whatever that is, you're all, you're all members of one body, but you've all been gifted in some area to be able to minister. Now, maybe that's just your spouse, or maybe it's your spouse and kids, or maybe it's a, a small group of, of, of people, but you've all been called to ministry. And when that comes, then the opposition comes, right? So... so we see in 1 Corinthians 12 this teaching about being part of the body with diverse gifts and differences in ministries and activities. So I don't just say that because I want to say that. It's Scripture, right? We each have our own ministry. So we'll see that 1 Corinthians 12. Uh, For as the body is one and as many members, but all the members of that one body, being many, are one body, so also is Christ. For in fact, the body is one member, but many. If the foot should say, because I am a hand, I am not the body, is it therefore not of the body? And if the ear should say, because I am not an eye, I am not the body, is it therefore not the body? If the whole body were an eye, where would be the hearing? If the whole body were hearing, where would be the smelling? <laughs> and, but now God has set the members, each one of them, in the body just as he pleases. So this is Bible. You've been set in the body where God pleases you to be and he's gifted you for that reason. And so just, the, just because the hand or the ear says, don't, doesn't see their value, right? That's what this verse is saying, that, that they don't see their value. It doesn't mean that they're, they're not part of the body. So it's the same with you, all right? We're not all alike. Um, and certainly not in our personalities or our upbringings or our tendencies, and, and certainly not in our calling, right? Certainly not in our ministry. You know, I made the joke a month or so ago, you know, if you all were called to preach, there wouldn't be enough room up here, right? Right? And then it would be empty out there. So, so your ministry is different than mine, and that's okay, and it's, it's preferred. That's the way God has it by design, right? And so what can happen in this ministry that we have is is because we get opposition, 
It can cause us to be weary and lose heart. And so there's an answer to that, and it's in Scripture, right? And so these are in no particular order. They were just as I was kind of brainstorming this in, in, in how we should guard our heart so that we don't become weary of doing good. And it's been, it's been said here, and I think Pastor Greg and whoever might have said it before him, that, that it's okay to get tired doing ministry, but don't get tired of doing the ministry. Maybe I didn't say that right, but you get what I mean, right? Ministry isn't a thing that we should be tired of. We can be tired doing it, right? And we should be putting our all into it. So we see things here that help us guard this tendency to grow weary and then lose heart. So first, we need to realize, as I've already said, that it's God who does the calling, right? In 1 Corinthians 12, 18, God has set the members, each one of them, in the body just as He pleases, right? So, so we're not here by accident. The, the thing you're called to isn't just something in your head, right? You're called to that, right? So seek God in your calling, be sure of it, but then know He's the one who set you there. So it's, it shouldn't be something you're trying to conjure yourself in your own power. That's a recipe for, for getting tired. Second, uh, by realizing that we're called to minister to, not only we're, we're, we're ministering to diverse people, uh, we're, we're ministering with them, right? So we are in ministries with people. And so no matter how diverse the people that you're ministering to, there's no call for division, right? And so we see that in Second Corinthians, or First Corinthians 12, 12. For as the body is one, has many members, but all the members of that one body, being many, are one body. So also is Christ, right? So we're, we're, we're in this thing together, guys. And third, by maintaining focus. So, you know, talking with someone over the weekend, you know, we reminded, like, distractions really narrow our focus, and, and they take our eyes off of our calling, whether it's like stress or conflict or disappointment, um, worldly distraction, uh, physical illness, you know, all of these prevent us from seeing the good that God is doing both in and through us, right? And so to guard ourselves in those moments when, when we feel stressed or when we're in conflict, to remind ourselves that, oh, my, my focus can't just be narrowed to this one, to this one thing, guard against that. We see, we see Paul's advice and I love how the, the Lord works because Steve and I didn't confer beforehand. But it, this is Philippians 3.14 where Paul is telling us to press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus, right? So when, when, we, when we receive opposition, we're, we're to press through that, right? We're, we don't see that as, as, a, as a need to, to step back away from our calling. We know it's sure because the Lord has called us to it, and so we should press on. And yet the, the, the fourth, um, last thing we see here, again, not in any particular order, is, is we need to model our calling after Jesus. That's, that's what he, he gave us, is, is a way to do our ministry. And this can be a complete sermon series on, it, or on itself, right, or even a month, right? So we're just going to really, really truncate it here. But, but Jesus stayed in constant communication with the Father, in constant commune with the Father, right? We see his prayer life. It was a model for us, right? He would often withdraw, even from the 12, to go off and pray and, and recharge and reconnect with, with the Lord. You know, that helped strengthen him 
in his resolve and in his own understanding of it was his will, the Father's will, right? Not his will, right? And so he spent this time communing with the Father to help his focus stay on the Father's will. We know that Jesus gave us advice for us to seek first the kingdom of God. Now certainly there's, there's times when, when, when something's urgent in the moment and needs to be taken care of. But be careful that that's not every other thing in your life, right? So that sense of urgency can take us away from seeking first the kingdom of God. And so I'll leave us with this in Hebrews 10, 24, and 25, and this is the last thing that we can do to help guard our hearts against growing weary and um, Hebrews 10, 24, 25. And let us consider how to stir one another up to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day drawing near. So some of the best encouragement that I've ever received is, is walking through these doors and, and getting that encouragement from a brother and sister or, or being in a small group and receiving the same, right? And so this is what this is saying here is, is we should, doing good to others, especially the household of faith, right, is to stir one another up to love and good works, encourage one another. And you can't do that unless you're in, in group, right, in, in, in some kind of small community. And so, you know, encourage one another, right, in your small groups, it's still... Small groups going, you can get signed up anytime. But, but stay in community, right? Stay in the church. This is where we can be encouraged and, and lifted up and equipped. You know, and, and if you're at home and, and you're finding that hard too, you know, there's, uh, there's ways you can do that too, by staying um, close to the people that, that love you and that you love. And so, I hope that was encouraging. I was really encouraged by studying this today. And so, um, you know, some of you may have been listening out there for a while as we've been going through these series, or maybe you're tuning in online, and, and you're like considering like these claims of Jesus, or, you know, you're wondering like, especially after today, well, okay, this, what is this joining the household of faith? What is that all about? And Jesus spoke of this. In, in Mark 8, 34, 35, and it says here, and he summoned the crowd with his disciples, and he said to them, if anyone wishes to come after me, he must deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever wishes to save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospels will save it. And then Paul explained to the Romans in this way, in Romans 10, 9, that if you confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus and believe in your heart that God has raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart one believes unto righteousness, and with the mouth confession is made unto salvation. Then it goes on to say, whoever calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. And so I'm going to call the worship band up, and we're going to go through our communion. And you know, if you've been considering that and you think today's the day, you just need to call on the name of, of Jesus. It's, it's simple. Um, it says here, the, the, the words are near you, they're in your mouth, right? Confession is made unto salvation. And so if you don't have, if you don't have the words, um, you know, we know that it's, it's helpful to be, 
to be led. But these aren't the magic words, right? This is just, just speak your heart. So, Father God, thank you for Jesus that, that he lived and died and, and rose for me, that, that his sins were covered on that cross of Calvary. And I believe in you, Lord Jesus. So help me to live for you and help me to, to serve you and to come into the household of faith. Show me and help me how to do that. In Jesus' name, amen.